Hello, and welcome to today's discussion, Can We All Become Conservationists, which is co-presented with the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. I'm Kelsey Schoenberg, an assistant editor for Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, we work to connect people to ideas and to one another by publishing original writing and presenting conversations like this one. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. You can find us at zocalopublicsquare.org. Today, we're about to hear from science journalist and author Michelle Nyhouse, who joins us to discuss her new book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Michelle will be interviewed by fellow science journalist Cynthia Barnett, who spent 25 years as a reporter, columnist, and editor before devoting her career to writing about the environment. She is the author of three books about water and climate change, most recently, Rain, A Natural and Cultural History. Over to you, Cynthia. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be speaking today with Michelle Nyhouse about her wonderful and timely new book, Beloved Beasts. I have to hold it up for all of you because the cover is so beautiful and the writing inside and the stories inside are just as beautiful as that cover. Um, Michelle is an author, author and science journalist who writes about conservation and global change all over the world. She works on the Life Up Close series for The Atlantic, and her writing has appeared in National Geographic, The New Yorker, and in four Best American anthologies. She has received two AAAS Kavli Science Journalism Awards and the Walter Sullivan Award for excellence in science journalism. And we are with her today to celebrate this, this new book. She's the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in the Age of Extinction, which publishes today. I can't recommend it highly enough. I absolutely loved it. I told Michelle I had to binge read it. It was so good. Uh, she charts the history of conservation efforts and the people behind them. Um, and that's what we're going to explore today. So Michelle, thank you and congratulations. I thought we should start with the origin story of Beloved Beasts. Uh, could you tell us how you came to write the book? Sure. Thanks so much for being here with me today, Cynthia. It's really a pleasure to get to talk to you about this book. Um, so I have been working on this book for a couple of years, but it had its genesis um, in the really in the mid 1990s, when I was an assistant on a wildlife research project in southwestern Utah, my job was to uh, follow tortoises around in the desert and take notes on what they ate. But because tortoises were a threatened species at the time, I was also privy to a lot of the political arguments over how the species was to be managed. And I was, I was so. I mean, horrified is the wrong word, I guess, surprised and, and impressed by the depth of and passion behind these arguments and um, on both sides. And I knew that some of these profound questions that people were arguing about, you know, why should we protect the species? What responsibility is it of ours? I knew those had been addressed by a series of people over the last century or so, but I, didn't have a sense of how that movement had developed and changed over time. I, you know, I, like most people, I knew some of the iconic names in conservation, but I didn't have a sense of conservation as a movement or as something that had developed a set of ideas over the decades. 
And so that that experience stayed with me and my interest in conservation history stayed with me. Um, and I, it, I think that firsthand experience really informed my research and my writing of this book because it, it in a way it's an effort to answer some of those questions that I had so long ago. I, I love that tortoise story and I was actually going to ask you your favorite Aesop fable but I think I'm not going to ask you now because I think I already know what it's going to be but I will say I feel a lot of common ground with the tortoise. <laughs> I will say that I thought it was brilliant to um, open with with this famous fabulist of, of ours that we all know Aesop's fables and so many of us grew up in childhood with with animal moral stories so i thought that was that was a really nice way in and i will officially ask is your favorite aesop fable the tortoise and the hare <laughs> yeah it is if i had to pick one i would say that and i started with aesop's fables because you know the conservation movement as a as a global movement as an as a political movement is really only 150 years old, but I started with those fables because our questions and our, our awareness of our often contradictory relationship with other species is much, 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 much older than that. And, um, you know, we've been, we've been exploring them with humor and with, with the, the many different emotions that accompany them for, for centuries. Uh, yeah. But yes, the tortoise in the air, <laughs> I would say is my favorite fabled, not just because of my experience, my firsthand experience with desert tortoises, which I still love to see when I can, but uh, I feel that I'm I'm one of those people who tends to be a little bit introverted and tends to chip away at things for a very long time, sometimes to my own, um, you know, to <laughs> sometimes longer than I should. So I, I do feel a lot of, a lot of sympathy with the tortoise. I really relate to what you've just said, Michelle. <laughs> um, let's Let's start with a little excerpt. Would you like to read us maybe a favorite bit from, from the beginning of the book? Sure, yeah, okay. I have a, a short bit here that uh, I think lays out my, my mission in, in this book and my hope um, of, the, of what I would accomplish by, by trying to weave these stories together. To most of us, the story of species conservation doesn't look much like a story. It looks like a jumble of tragedies and emergencies, obituaries and near obituaries, relieved only by sporadic heroics and temporary successes. It's easy to forget that the world we live in is far richer thanks to those who found convincing reasons and the required means to provide sanctuary to other species. Without their work, there would likely be no bison, no tigers and no elephants. There would be few, if any, whales, wolves, or egrets. We can learn from the history of conservation from its successes and failures, its oversights and insights. For there is still no shortcut through the difficult work of protecting living organisms and the places they need to survive. And there is still no substitute for the emotional connection with other animals and other species the love of life that inspired the first modern conservationists and continues to sustain so many today. <laughs> Thanks. Beautiful, such a beautiful reading. Thank you for that. Um, 
it, it's true that you said it can look like a jumble, but you have really taken that and, and woven it, Michelle, into such beautiful stories. And, and you do this through really compelling characters. Um, that was my favorite thing about the book. I think the, the people you've chosen and these wonderful characters, uh, characters familiar and new, but there are two women in particular who really, um, who, who I knew, but I, I learned something new about everyone in this book I, I read about, even those I thought I knew well. And two women in this book who really deserve to be more widely known are Rosalie Edge and Eleanor Ostrom. So I'd like you to start with Rosalie Edge, um, <laughs> who enters the conservation movement by way of the suffragist uh, movement. Can, let's start with, with her. Can you tell us a little about who Rosalie Edge was and why you chose her as one of the characters in this book? Sure. Um, Rosalie Edge was one of my favorite characters to write about. I, I loved all the characters, I, or I ended up loving all the characters that I wrote about, even those who did and said some reprehensible things or made some terrible errors in the course of their careers. All of them had something that I grew to love about them. But Rosalie Edge was a special favorite. She was, she came to conservation activism relatively late in life uh, after a decade plus of very devoted work in the suffragist movement. Uh, she lived in New York State. She was born into a wealthy family in Manhattan. Uh, lived abroad for several years and then came, when she came back to New York, worked in the suffrage movement until uh, the vote for women was achieved in New York State and was on its way to being achieved nationwide. And then after um, the breakup of her marriage, she had, she had a couple of, of years where she kind of retreated from public work and she discovered a real love for birds, and and that was true of a, a lot of these characters that I whose lives I learned about. They often came to love other species through some kind of loss in childhood or some kind of loss in later life. They realized that nature, writ broadly, other species could be companions, could be some sort of solace to them when they had not been treated well by their own species. Uh, so Rosalie Edge was definitely one of those. She and she befriended uh, the the very devoted core of birders in Central Park in Manhattan, um, which still exists today. There are still people who go to Central Park every morning to look for the migration. And um, through that, she became aware that the Audubon Society, which was quite a large organization at the time, had become really complacent. It was headed by predominantly wealthy sportsmen and scientists who had a had acquired some vested interest in the status quo and were not that interested in protecting birds that were unpopular among their supporters, their financial supporters like bald eagles. Um, birds of prey at the time were considered, even by many conservation-minded sportsmen, were considered pests. Uh, even though the bald eagle was the national bird, it was, it was not considered something that people were concerned about saving. Rosalie Edge thought this was crazy, and she stood up at a um, at the Audubon Society board meeting, much to the dismay of the entire board, and really made herself a nuisance. And asked, "Why are we not protecting? If we care about birds, why are we not protecting all birds? Conservation isn't just about 
picking out, you know, the species that we happen to like. And that set her off on um, this very influential career as a grassroots activist for conservation. And she ended up uh, indirectly, I think, changing the course of the Audubon Society and in a way changing the nature of the Audubon Society. It's still a much more grassroots organization than it was at that time. And I think Rosalie Edge had something to do with that. And then she also founded Hawk Mountain Sanctuary in Pennsylvania, which some people may be familiar with. It's a place where hawks were being shot. It's a ridgeline where a lot of migrating hawks uh, move through in the spring and the fall. And in the 30s, it was a place where hunters would go and shoot hawks by the dozens, thinking that they were these pests. And Rosalie had bought the property, turned it into a sanctuary and started a data set that eventually was used by another amazing woman who was so important to conservation, Rachel Carson, who drew on that data years and years later to make her argument for Silent Spring. Yes, that's another thing I really appreciate about the book is this progression um, through time and through history and through figures. And like I was saying before, I sort of knew these people separately. And in fact, I had read a book a couple of years ago that featured some of them, but entirely separately without a, without a string tying them together. And something I really appreciated here was the sense of inheritance that I'm sure you feel the way I do. I, I kind of feel that inheritance myself, as I think a lot of people on this, on this um, event Twitter probably do. Can you talk a little bit about that inheritance between Rosalie Edge and Rachel Carson? Yeah, um, and that was one of the real joys of this book was discovering a lot of that myself. I mean, I, I had a sense that it existed and that was something I was really interested in bringing out, but I finding the evidence of that was just very exciting to um, to discover in, in biographies and then sometimes in archives uh, letters between some of these well-known figures that, that showed that they were thinking about each other. They were disagreeing with each other, um, sometimes quite vociferously. They were building on each other's ideas, learning from one another. And, and I just loved finding those connections um, and you know, seeing them express gratitude to each other, um, or even in the few instances where they expressed hostility to one another, that was also exciting. Um, so Rachel Carson, when she put together the argument that she made in Silent Spring, a, that that said, look, this this poison that we this very effective pesticide that we are now using all over the world has many benefits, but we are not fully aware of the damage it's doing to other species and the damage that it will eventually do to us. And she was a very careful researcher, and she wanted to use solid data in her work, so she. I mean, you can find the letter where she wrote to the caretaker of Hawk Mountain Sanctuary that had been founded by Rosalie Edge about 20 years earlier and said, I've heard through some mutual friends that you have some data on eagles and the numbers of eagles that you're seeing pass over Hawk Mountain Sanctuary every year. And the, the caretaker wrote back and said, yes, you know, Rosalie Edge had us start this data set. And now we, we add to it every year with this, you know, very detailed daily counts of the birds that are passing over. And we've had noticed these big differences. And she wrote, uh, Rachel Carson ended up saying that that was a crucial 
piece of her case that she made because a lot of it was, um, it was a very strong case, but a lot of it was, uh, was circumstantial in, in, you know, tying it precisely to DDT. She had to look at a lot of different case studies and sort of almost make a legal argument that, look, not all of these things can be happening coincidentally. And, and so that she was able to say, look, this data set has been being taken, has been underway for almost 20 years now. And look at this dramatic drop that meant a lot to her argument. And we wouldn't have it had it not been for eccentric Rosalie Edge, <laughs> who you know made herself a nuisance and um, made it her business to make sure that that ridgetop was protected back in the 1930s. So, so true and a wonderful story. So, um... You know, the world, the world heard Rachel Carson, and that is the wonderful thing that we can look back at Rachel Carson and, and show and, and show um, how much changed after the banning of DDT. The person in the book that strikes me as someone who perhaps we haven't listened to and should, and there's still time to do so, is Eleanor Ostrom. And she, she sort of comes in and out of the chapters and mm -hmm. so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about her and how she fits in and, you know, what, why perhaps, if you have any theories about why we haven't heard her important message and, mm -hmm. and how we get there. Yeah, thanks for asking about Eleanor Ostrom. She's one of my favorite, even though she isn't uh, foregrounded very much in the book, she is one of my favorite characters. And in, in a way, the patron saint of the, of the book, because I feel like she has such an important message for where we need to go as conservationists in the future. Um, she was not a professional conservationist, uh, perhaps in her private life she was, but she was a political scientist. And she came of age as a researcher at uh, in the late 1960s when a ecologist named Garrett Hardin had just published a very striking argument in the pages of the, the scientific journal Science, very well known um, among scientists, uh, laying out a, well, to call it a theory is generous, but, but laying out an idea he called the tragedy of the commons, where he said, look, uh, you know, if, if, we, if people are allowed to share a common resource, um, ruin, ruin is inevitable. If people are just going to, they're going to take everything they possibly can get for themselves until the resource is used up. And the only way to avoid this tragedy of the commons, he, he said, was either total government control or total privatization. And Eleanor Ostrom, who was a young researcher at the time, was saying, well, that's not true. I've already seen that you know, people in, in her PhD research, she'd already seen that people in the LA basin where she had grown up had figured out a way of uh, some rules to govern their own sharing of groundwater resources. So she said, it's not inevitable that this has to be totally privatized or totally under government control. They're, they're, people are capable of avoiding the tragedy of the commons through mutual agreements. And so she devoted her career to, to studying these systems of, of sharing resources that you know have existed for hundreds of years all around the world in different forms. And trying to diagnose what made them work. And her findings have, have spawned an entire field of, of research that is 
quite well known to social scientists, I think, though perhaps not as well known as it should be. She did win the Nobel Prize in economics toward the end of her life. But conservationists, I feel like, and this is speaking very generally, not all of them, but conservationists tend to be still trapped in this idea of the tragedy of the commons. Um, you hear it, people you know, will, will just talk about it casually all the time. And I, I think <laughs> we all have instances in our own lives where we've seen the tragedy of the commons play out. You know, If you've been in a traffic jam, you've seen the tragedy of the commons play out. It does happen. But this idea that it's not inevitable, that we can avoid it, and that we don't have to you know, resort to authoritarianism or resort to some kind of radical um, privatization in order to accomplish it when it comes to other species and when it comes to natural resources that we depend on, that idea has really not been absorbed uh, by the conservation movement. I think it's so important because it's so counterproductive for, for conservationists to think, oh, well, humans can only do damage. Humans are just programmed to mess up the environment and to not recognize the constructive role that humans can play and need to play. I mean, we need, of course, to broaden the environmental movement and uh, figuring out ways that we can cooperatively manage our resources is, I think, the way to do it. Absolutely. It's almost as if conservationists are drawn to the doom, drawn <laughs> to the to the Garrett Hardens. And it's it's true that that the chroniclers of the movement, the journalists and the and the people covering these issues can also be drawn to the doom. And I think that may be yeah. part of why um, voices like hers are are missing and that we that we you know perhaps get get a little bit too close to the doom and and don't focus enough on the solutions and that's another another nice thing about this book is that it's got such a great balance you don't ignore any of the doom and gloom but you really manage to find solutions and inspirational people um, i'll just i'll just read the quote in my notebook that i had to write down when i got to this part um, from Eleanor Ostrom, we are neither, I think, I think this is yours, Michelle, we are neither trapped in inexorable tragedies nor free of moral responsibility. And that, that moral responsibility comes up from Aesop to Ostrom through, throughout. <laughs> and so um, we're, we're on notice here. Yeah. Yeah, I love that she said that and that I love that she insisted on the importance of complexity and insisted mm -hmm. that it and pushed back throughout her life against easy solutions. And I, I think, I mean, I want to I want to express empathy for conservationists who spend so much of their lives uh, looking <laughs> looking firsthand at the damage humans can do. It's it's not in a way surprising to me that so many of them are drawn to a story about the greed of humanity. Um, and, you know, for journalists, it's also, there's drama in, in that tragedy. But I would say, you know, as a theater fan myself, tragedies are inevitable. You know what's gonna happen at the end. They might be more dramatic at the beginning, but I think comedies are more interesting because you don't know. And you don't know what's gonna happen. And I think Ostrom's, uh, theory allows us to treat the story of conservation as a little more like a comedy, not in the ha-ha sense so much as just, we don't know what the ending is and we have a chance to 
if we screw up, we have a chance to make amends and we have a chance to try different things. Um, and it's a really, that is harder to explain. <laughs> I think that the simplicity of the tragedy of the commons tends to win out both with conservationists and with journalists, but yes. <laughs> take the time to, to listen and try to figure out how to tell that more complicated story. I think it, it um, there, is, there is huge opportunity in it for all of us. Yes, absolutely. And she, she did it. She was able to articulate complexity um, and, and you are too. This book does um, you know, follow all of these different threads and, and bring them in and out and it really, um, does so with a great logical progression and, and makes a lot of sense. So you, you share that ability to explain things with, with great clarity, complex things. And that's, um, that's what a great science writer does. And that really comes through in this book. So well, I'm glad to hear it because there were times when I wondered. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> extremely complex history. And there were times when I thought, now, where is that? where is that thread and where do I put it? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was one of the most fun parts of the project, if the most difficult. Yes, yes. So let's talk about Aldo Leopold because um, when, when we talk about some of these tragedies, um, Aldo Leopold was working on wolves and wolves have been in the news these past few weeks because of the, um, you know, the gravity of the wolf hunt in, in Wisconsin. I think they put out a, a certain number of, of, uh, of days and the wolves killed far outweighed the, um, the estimate. And now there's been some, some good stories, one by AP kind of looking at looking at the broader region and the broader country and, and the truth that there's, there's kind of something of a shift underway perhaps in wolf hunting. So let's, let's um, unpack this a little bit. Could you talk about Aldo Leopold in the context of hunting because your book is not anti-hunting and there could be people on the call who are surprised by that. And I would like to hear you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what, what we are to learn from Aldo Leopold that might, that might help us. I, in fact, I asked Aldo Leopold's um, biographer, who I know you also know, Kurt Miney, I once asked him what, what would Leopold say about this? And he really hated when people <laughs> asked him that question. So I'll try not to put it that way. Um, <laughs> what might we have to learn from Aldo Leopold about what's going on now with the intensity, the return of an intense wolf hunt in the United States? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's heartbreaking what's been happening with the wolf hunt the past couple of weeks. Um, just, well, let me start with, the, with uh, my, my general attitude about hunting. Uh, I, I tend to think of hunting as, uh, again, something that is very complex. There is plenty of, it's done, it, it has caused great ecological damage. Um, it's, it can be done very cruelly. But in the best cases, I think it can be a useful tool for opening up an opportunity for peaceful coexistence between 
humans and other species when, in the case of dangerous or destructive animals that truly do uh, you know, multiply beyond the habitat we have left available for them. Uh, I also think that subsistence hunters, people who still hunt for meat have been left out of the conservation movement for far too long. And I think the conservation movement would be better for including their, their interests and concerns in, in, its, in its approach to protecting other species. And then I also look back to history where the conservation movement for better and worse, as I talk about in the book was founded by elite sportsmen who had many flaws, but did have a genuine admiration and appreciation for the species that they protected. So, so I, I do have, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a whole a, a promoter of hunting anywhere and everywhere, but I do have an appreciation for its uses and for its significance to the history of conservation. Aldo Leopold uh, was not a, not a wealthy hunter, but he was he was raised by an enthusiastic sport hunter who also happened to be a very ethical sport hunter who was aware that uh, that it, he grew up at a time in the Midwest when there were very few hunting regulations. His Leopold's dad taught him that um, in the early 1900s that you know even though you could you shouldn't take all the ducks that you could shoot in the day that you know that you were you needed to be very thoughtful about how you harvested your your dinner so to speak and and that you should you shouldn't you know shoot an animal for no reason you should you should eat it and that was the beginning of leopold's conservation ethic which became incredibly significant to the conservation movement as he grew older and became a professor of wildlife biology and, and someone who just beautifully, I think, expressed human responsibility to what he called land and I think what we what ecologists would call habitat. Uh, so, and then famously, he had a conversion where he, in his youth, he shot a wolf. He was a young forest service forester. He, he shot a wolf without thinking much about it. And when he went to, it was something that very common, people did it all the time. And when he went to, it was, he was at the top of the canyon and he went down to see what had happened to this wolf that he shot. He realized it was a, it was a female wolf and that she had small cubs and he watched her die and it made a big impression on him. And he didn't convert, so to speak, convert to the to understanding the importance of predators in the ecological web until much later. But, but that was the very beginning of a long conversion to really appreciating all species and the importance of protecting all species. So I just, I think about what's happened the past couple of weeks with these hunting groups trying to take advantage of some of the Trump era rollbacks before Biden's appointees are fully in place and able to and able to once you know reinstate some of the protections for for species and there's just there's such greed there's such um, real kind of delight in the in the cruelty of it 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 um, I just think Leopold enthusiastic hunter that he was devoted hunter that he was for his entire life would just I don't want to as as Kurt Miney says I don't want to presume what Leopold would think, but I, I can't help but think that he would just he would just weep to see uh, and you know wolves killed at this in these numbers and and with this delight. I think that there's really something unethical about uh, killing an animal with that kind of 
cruel enthusiasm. Yes, the AP story quoted a wildlife manager as saying it was it was hunting by vengeance rather than hunting by science, and that that is a really chilling statement, isn't it? It is, and it it, it seems so tied into the rest of our yes. politics of grievance. You know that that something something that is not going well for you can be blamed on this animal that has historically right. been blamed for a lot of things in our in our culture, usually unfairly. And, um, and I, I think it's just a shame. Yeah. So there's, there's another angle that Aldo Leopold kind of allows you to explore in this book. He, he and so many others and so many other stories kind of get to this point, but you point out that we're all really familiar with um, what he said about the land ethic but he has this whole really important other paragraph that sometimes gets glossed over. He goes on to say, in short, a land ethic changes the role of homo sapiens from conqueror of the land community to plain member and citizen of it. It implies respect for his fellow members and also respect for the community as such. And it is such a beautiful and forgotten piece of the quote. Mm -hmm. And um, that kind of, I think, gives us a jumping off point to talk about people. He was talking about this community as an animal community and a people community. And something that comes up again and again in this book is this fundamental truth that the costs and benefits of conservation are unevenly distributed among people. And that is a huge problem. And it's a huge problem for wildlife. It's a huge problem for marine life um, that, I, that I dealt with in the book I've been working on. And um, it, it'd be a good thing for us to talk about how, tell us, tell us maybe one of the best stories um, that, that really pinpoints this problem of the conservation movement sort of leaving out people and, and especially the most vulnerable people among us. Yeah, I mean, as, as we talked about earlier with, with uh, conservationists' uh, affection for the, the idea of the tragedy of the commons or their, their continuing uh, sort of, sort of tur uh, turn to that idea, I think that the, the conservation movement at its worst treats, and it has had many successes, but at, at its worst, it tends to treat humans as this kind of homogenous force, usually a negative homogenous force. And that leaves out, you know, most of humanity. <laughs> it has the effect of leaving out most of humanity out of the conservation movement. Um, and I had a very memorable experience while I was researching this book in, in Namibia, where I went to learn in Southern Africa, where I went to learn about their system of community conservancies, which is now an, a national system. It started out as a very grassroots um, experiment, but it's now a national system. Uh, and, and their communities, rural communities are organized into conservancies. They meet to discuss the future of their species or their, of their neighboring species um, and to determine you know how much how many of how many of their animals can be can be shot for food how many of them can be hunted commercially 
And over time, they have, they have had amazing success in bringing back numbers of many, many species that were struggling and notably fending off poachers, which there have been several waves of, of elephant and rhino poachers in Southern Africa, as many people have heard of, but, but because these conservancies have worked together as communities for so long, they don't want their, their elephants and rhinos to go extinct. So if they see someone, if they see a stranger at the bar kind of bragging about, you know, what they might do in the bush, they will call the, the local rhino ranger who's, a, who's hired by the conservancy and, and will go out and, and make sure that this poacher doesn't have access to animals. To me, it was such a remarkable example of people were, these were people who were being forced to carry the burdens of conservation for people who were much wealthier than they were. They were being, this, and this is before the community conser conservancy system started, they were being expected to tolerate elephants, rhinos, lions, leopards, species that, you know, genuinely do pose a danger to people, not, not often, not sometimes not as often as they are rumored to, but, but it is, you know, they can cause genuine damage to crops and they can, uh, you know, there's many, many stories of, of people who have been injured or killed by these animals. So they, they were being expected to tolerate these animals without realizing any benefits from their conservation. You know, their, their hunting rights were restricted. They didn't, weren't, they weren't making any money from tourism. The community conservancy system reduced, didn't take away the costs of conservation, but it reduced those short-term costs and made it possible for them, for people that, you know, for people in the local communities to realize the long-term benefits of conservation. And I think it just reveals that most people, you know, even people who are very entrenched against laws like those that we have to protect wolves, you know, think the Endangered Species Act is such a bugaboo in many rural communities in the West, as I witnessed when I was studying desert tortoises, I think most people, when you set that aside, most people do not want their local species to go extinct. You know, do you really want the tortoise to go away? Do you really want to be responsible for that? Well, no, it's kind of a cool animal. You know, I just don't want my livelihood to be disrupted. I just don't want to be solely responsible for conserving it. So Namibia had, had managed to clear some of that away, some of that grievance away and um, reconnect people with their appreciation for species. Mm -hmm. You know, once they can reduce the cost of living with them, they were perfectly happy to do so. And, and you know, would go to some trouble to make it happen. And I, I got to witness that firsthand and it was quite, I, I knew about this work in theory, but it was something else to see it happening. I love the scene when you got to see the rhino. You, uh, you you were so excited. Tell us about when you finally got to see the rhino. <laughs> that's right. I got to see it. Well, it was so funny because, you know, you fortunately these animals are not, um, you know, they 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 keep their distance from people. You know, even if you're out trying to find them, they they know that it's risky to be around people. But we did. I did get to see one rhino and uh, it was kind of hidden in, in at high noon, you know, in Northern Namibia, it was very hot and uh, it was hidden in the shade of a, a partial shade of a tree. And, and the, the guy that we were with said, look right there. And 
there it was sticking its little horn out of the uh <laughs> out of the bush and and i just it was so memorable how it just looked at us and kind of if a rhino could shrug it would have shrugged and then, <laughs> took itself away after it, you know, didn't, didn't hurry, but took itself, took itself away after a few minutes. Wonderful. Um, I noticed that perhaps conspicuously, you didn't use a word in this book, and that word is de-extinction. Um, that's something we have read about a lot in the past couple of years. Um, why did you not cover de-extinction, or perhaps you covered it, but just not uh, not using the word. Mm. Yeah, in a, in a way, the there has been a lot of attention on a lot of press attention, and even attention within the scientific literature on what's called de-extinction. Uh, and, and in fact, that attention was one of I had many motivations for writing this book, but it was one of one of the motivations for writing this book, because I felt, and I should say, de-extinction is, is, is what you might call the brand name for a process of using DNA from an extinct species and, um, and basically creating a hybrid animal with that extinct species DNA and then a similar living extant species. So um, my problems with de-extinction really start with the term because it's not the extinction. We are not reviving a species as it once was. We are we are creating a hybrid, and you know this is all theoretical to some extent. But um, what is being proposed is to create a hybrid animal that might or might not take the ecological place of this extinct species. Um, I, having learned about this. The history of conservation. I'm just having thought about it. I've been interested in it for a long time. I I feel very concerned about de-extinction because I feel like it is a reversion to our very early ideas about conservation. That it was just that it's just about saving single species, you know, almost apart from their role in the ecosystem. And that once we bring, you know, if we can bring back the passenger pigeon, our job will be done. And I think what we've learned over the past century is that conservation is about so much more than that. Uh, and and de-extinction or the idea of de-extinction as it's, as it's bandied about in the press by some of it, especially by some of its promoters, I think is, is very damaging to that progress because it is a sexy idea. I mean, I myself think, wow, that would be very cool, but, um, and cool as it might be, it's not conservation as we know it to be. And I do want to be clear, there are many genetic technologies that could be helpful to conservation. And I think most of the people who are, who are working to develop those are, are very humble about their potential. You know, they see them as insurance policies, you know, to help, uh, to help, um, expand, you know, extremely limited populations. We just have had news about um, a, a, a cloned black-footed ferret, and that technology may indeed help increase the genetic diversity of this very, very small, you know, small persistent population of black-footed ferrets. Those things can be useful, and I think most of the people who are who are working to advance them know that they are last-ditch efforts. Um, what I what I do worry about is the more public kind of promotional face of what's called de-extinction, and that it's being held out as a as an answer to what an easy answer 
to what is again an extremely complex problem as Eleanor Ostrom would remind us um, yes. and it's conservation is not as simple as just making more animals. Great point and a point that comes up again and again in this book is the 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 fact that it's important to save species actually when when they're still common that yes. is the time to work on them and the in the importance of saving habitats not just um, iconic habitats but but the seagrass and the short grass and so on. We only have a couple of minutes left, Michelle. So I wanna ask you a final question. If you could tell us your great hope for this book, what do you hope that your readers will take away from Beloved Beasts? Well, what I hope they'll take away is what I took away from the writing of it, which is that all is not lost. I, I don't. I don't want to at all minimize the the challenge, the, the the enormity of the challenges that we face when it comes to conservation, um, and they are they are serious and they're getting more serious all the time. However, this book reminded me or taught me that we have learned so much in the past century and a half about what's possible, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And it's almost, I feel like it's so easy to become depressed about the, the prospects for life on earth. And, and I just hope that people who read this book will realize that there's so much opportunity, there's so much we can do. We can't save everything. You know, there will be extinct, there have been extinctions, there will be extinctions, there will be more losses, but just because we can't save everything doesn't mean that everything is lost. And, uh, it, you know, we can't, we can't retreat to the couch just yet, but we have to keep at it because we, <laughs> we have a lot of knowledge and we need to find the will to use it. I'm going to hold this up again because I love it so much and I really hope that everyone will order Beloved Beast because it was such a pleasure and you will feel uplifted and inspired. Um, I, I have to bring this to a close as much as I hate to. I feel like we could speak for another hour about this wonderful book, but Michelle, congratulations on the birthday for Beloved Beast. Uh, thank you for this conversation and thank you to Zocalo and the National History Museum of Los Angeles County for bringing us together for this event. Please check out the next Zocalo Natural History Museum of LA event, Exploring Fashion and Politics next week. You can visit Zocalo's website tomorrow to read a summary of what we talked about today. And there are some very quirky interviews with both me and Michelle on the website where you can learn what we have in common in our favorite scent and other quirky things. You can see me in my Girl Scout uniform. <laughs> you can also find this and all other discussions on Zocalo's website and podcast and on all the major platforms. So thank you everyone who has joined us today. I wish we could have been together in person, but we really appreciate you being with us. And I wish everyone a, a wonderful evening. And thanks again, Michelle. Thanks so much, Cynthia. This was such a pleasure.